Well, it's a great joy to be with all of you this morning, and I'm very grateful to Alex for inviting me to come and preach. Having spent many years as rector of various congregations, I know that inviting the bishop to preach is a risky business. Uh, you never know how much cleanup you'll have to do afterwards. So thank you, Alex, for taking the risk, and I do promise not to leave too much mess. Now, I understand that you are working through a series of sermons on the second letter of Peter. Now, that is one of my favorite portions of Scripture, and I'm honored to preach on this final section. As you've already learned, Peter's two letters were written to a Messianic community about which he cared passionately. They had undergone a great deal of persecution, and many had struggled to stay faithful. And Peter suggests in the opening chapter of this letter that he is close to death. And so he writes with great intensity. This could very well be considered his last word in testament uh, to those that he loved and also indeed to us. Our reading uh, begins with the word therefore. And as students of the scriptures, you know that it always prompts us to ask the question, what is it therefore? What is the context of this passage? And as you've already learned, Peter writes with a passionate concern about end times. He writes to warn them about the coming day of the Lord and the need for them to get ready and be prepared. But then, as now, there were many scoffers. People who thought that all of this talk about the second coming of the Lord was utter foolishness. Where is the promise of his coming? They asked. All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Nothing has changed. Nothing is going to be changed. What about you? What do you think about the second coming? I mean, do you even think about it? A few years ago, Angela and I were visiting Lagos, the largest city in Nigeria. By the way, I think you may have heard my rather curious process in, or in consecration. I was actually made initially a bishop of the Church of Nigeria, a missionary bishop. So that means I did spend lots of time going backwards and forwards. And I frankly had to learn a great deal. I think like many of us, I'm fairly ignorant when it comes to other major parts of the world. And indeed discovered that Lagos, the largest city in Nigeria, has got more than 15 million people. And I was there for the annual missionary bishops conference of the Church of Nigeria. And it was held at the Archbishop Vining Memorial Church Cathedral in West Lagos, an amazing place. I can still remember our first visit to the church a couple of years earlier. Angela and I had been invited to a midweek prayer meeting. But we thought it would be a typical kind of prayer gathering, a, a handful of faithful people praying quietly. Were we wrong? When we arrived, we found the church full of people praying very noisily, Approximately 800 men and women were present and they were praying up a storm. In fact, they were also very organized. They had sets of uh, papers for those who had prayer requests and then another set of color-coded papers for prayer answers. And then they were collated and then reported out to the gathering. Not a bad idea. Uh, the church campus is in the middle of a congested commercial district and they have had to build up rather than out to accommodate all of their ministry needs, including a four-story air-conditioned conference center. And the Bishop of Lagos West told me they were now looking into purchasing a neighboring hospital 
just as a parish church, because so many medical needs were going unmet in their community. Now, that's a pretty significant mission. And then on a huge banner, I saw their vision statement. To be the leading church in the diocese of the, and, and diocese in the church in Nigeria in preparing this nation for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now that is a vision. They really believe that Jesus is coming back to this earth in power and majesty, and they wanted to get everybody ready. It was not an abstract theory or philosophical concept for them, but a practical, motivating reality. They know he's coming back. They know that the day of the Lord will come and it will be a day of accountability, and they want to be ready so that they can present to him the most glorious church they can possibly be. Well, I was profoundly challenged by their vision, their faith, and their commitment to the gospel, and I still am. I mean, just imagine how it, it's your vision statement for Christ Church Fox Chapel. We are here to prepare the people of Pittsburgh and beyond for the second coming of Christ. Well, if not, why not? Now, I'm more than ready to admit that one of the big problems with any mention of the second coming is all of the false teachers who have come and gone with their alarming claims about dates and places, and yet still the Lord is not fit their schedule. One of the more famous ones was a man called William Miller, a Baptist preacher from upstate New York. After 14 years of intense Bible study, he became convinced that Christ would return in 1843. And then he announced that April 3rd was the day, and some disciples went to the mountaintops hoping for a head start to heaven. Others went to the graveyards, planning to ascend with their departed loved ones, and it was reported that Philadelphia society ladies clustered together outside town to avoid entering God's kingdom amid the common herd. <laughs> Think about that for a moment. And then when April 4th dawned, of course that is East Pennsylvania, isn't it? It's not the same as West Pennsylvania. When April 4th dawned, as usual, the Millerites were disillusioned, but not for long. They remembered that their leader had predicted a range of dates for Christ's return. They had until March 21st of the next year. The devout continued to make ready, but again they were disappointed. And then they discovered in his writings a third date, October 22nd, 1844. That was the date. They were sure. It also passed into history, as did the Millerites. But there have been thousands of others who have followed in their footsteps. So what are we to do? As people who claim to be followers of Jesus, we don't have the option of simply ignoring this central tenet of our faith. Jesus himself spoke about it repeatedly. In Matthew's Gospel, he tells them on that day that the world as they know it would come to an end. The Son of Man will come on clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and that he would send out his angels to gather the elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. And they could tell he was serious. Once they recovered from the shock, the disciples had lots of questions. Now, when will this happen? What can we do about it? And how then shall we live in the meantime? And in response, Jesus tells several familiar stories. First, he reminds them of that great flood when Noah entered the ark, leaving behind all of the people who were unprepared. Then he tells the story of the wise and wicked servants. The latter used the master's delay to eat and drink with drunkards, so they were unprepared 
when he did arrive. And of course, there's the familiar story of the, the ten bridesmaids or virgins, five foolish and five wise. The foolish ones ran out of oil for their lamps, whereas the wise ones kept enough back and so were ready to greet the bridegroom when he arrived. And the story of the talents comes next. And you recall that the master was away. While he was away, two of the servants took his money and made it grow, whereas the others buried his talent and then on his master's return lost everything. Of course, last is that terrifying story of the final judgment when there will be an eternal separation. Some will inherit the kingdom while others will be consigned to the fires of hell. All of these stories underscore three vital points about which Jesus is absolutely clear. One, he is coming back. Make no mistake about it. Two, we cannot possibly know when. And three, we need to be ready at all times. Let me give you those three again because they're vital. First, he is coming back. Second, we cannot possibly know when. So third, we need to be ready at all times. Do I hear an amen? Amen. By the way, just in case you didn't realize, I think Alex has not taught you well, uh, amen does not mean, oh dear, he's almost finished, because I have not. It means, yes, I agree. That's what amen means. Amen? amen. Mm. It's a shout, not a cough. Okay, so. How then shall we live? How do we get ready? Well, listen again to Jesus, because all of his stories make the same point. While we wait with eager expectancy for the Lord's return, we are to live faithful lives. Somebody gave me a wonderful bumper sticker which said, Jesus is coming. Look busy. That's one way to say it. Let me offer another. In these uncertain times, nothing is more important than living faithful lives. Or as this final section of Peter's letter reminds us, we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And how are we to grow in knowledge of Jesus? Well, of course, the Bible itself. It's one of the key instruments for this growth. You know, today there's an abundance of self-help books, podcasts, seminars, and TED Talks, all designed to help you live a better, more abundant life. And yet we already have the very best resource that has been tested for hundreds of years. And this Bible is an amazing library of resources for daily living. And yet it's perhaps one of the most neglected. Now, as you know well, our Anglican prayer book liturgy is saturated in Scripture. And many congregations make it a practice to have three or four portions of Scripture read every Sunday. But that doesn't replace the need for personal Bible study. And again, there are many resources. There's really no excuse. Recent years, Angela and I found ourselves traveling a great deal, and we've rediscovered the world of the audio Bible. We listen as we drive. And I commend it to you. There's something very powerful about listening to complete books of the Bible as you travel. Now, when I normally read, study the Bible, my mind goes off on tangents. I either reconnect with cross-references or I think about Sturm and illustration. I just kind of go all, all over the place. But when you have to listen to the Bible, you're being read to you by somebody else. And you can't go anywhere because you're driving. It is amazing how that word begins to fill your mind and you begin to say, yeah, it does make sense. I mean, listen to the book of Romans from the beginning to the end. It will leave you absolutely convicted. Paul knew what he was writing about. 
He knew our situation and writes with great confidence. So we are to live faithful lives. We need to read our Bibles. We also need to be regular in prayer and worship. Worship is not really for us. It's for Almighty God. And God has commanded we gather regularly. He knows we need corporate worship. We should also use the gifts that God has given to us. We should visit the sick and and take care of the widows and orphans. We should show hospitality and reach out to those who are alone. We should love our neighbors. We should do those things that will count for eternity. And that leads to our next insight. We're also to live fearless lives. Jesus warned, you will be brought before kings and governors all on account of my name. And this will result in and you're being witnesses to them. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves, for I will give you the words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict, and all men will hate you because of me. But not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will gain life. You know, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, there was a time of terrible persecution. Jerusalem was destroyed in the year 70 AD, and more than a million people died in the siege. The marks of that brutal devastation can still be seen on the the huge temple stones. I've been there many times, and it's always humbling to kind of look at those massive blocks that were the foundation of the temple and to, to see the burn marks, to realize what... I mean, now it looks beautiful, looks on postcards and stuff, but the actual devastation was terrifying. And yet, in the middle of the terror, many of the new Christians were eloquent witnesses for the gospel, and people were converted through their fearlessness. It's happening again today. There are many places in the world where to stand for Christ is to risk death. And yet, it's in those places that God is growing his church at a remarkable rate. In Nigeria, for example, 20 million Anglicans quite a bit more than we have. And in the northern part of Nigeria, to be an Anglican, to be a Christian, is to risk death. And I've met quite a few of those folks. I've traveled there. I know whereof I speak. But it's not just over there. There's a great deal of anxiety and fear right here. The pandemic has frightened people. The naive and somewhat arrogant assumption that we are in charge and we can manage the world has been proven to be false. Follow the science, they say. Doesn't have all the answers. And now people are asking important questions. And we do have answers. And because of that, we're all being given opportunities to share the gospel of God's amazing grace. And we can do so confidently and without fear. Because we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. It's true. So how are we to live in these uncertain times? Faithful lives. What's the second one? Fearless lives. Yes, I used to be a Baptist. Everything has to have the same letter to begin. And there's always three points. I know, I know. Faithful, fearless. There's one more insight that we can glean from that wonderful prophet Malachi. By the way, it is Malachi, not Malachi. 
and Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, he says this, before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to their fathers. We are to live forgiving and forgiven lives. Angela and I have been blessed with five wonderful children and 12 even more wonderful, in fact, perfect grandchildren. I have photographs to prove it. And bragging, yes, I admit, four great-grandchildren. You know, I take credit for all of this. And they've given us great joy and many sermon illustrations. And one of my favorite comes from our third daughter, Catherine, who is now married to Jay Slocum, a priest in the Diocese of Pittsburgh. Catherine works as the director of children's ministry at the Church of the Ascension. And they have two daughters of their own. Well, we were driving in the family station wagon along the Merritt Parkway, a limited access parkway through southern Connecticut, first built in 1938. It crosses Fairfield County and still has many scenic views. And as clergy families sometimes do, we were having a lively discussion about the second coming of Christ. It happens. And we were coming over one of the parkway's many inclines, and the setting sun reflected over the clouds, producing a dramatic golden sunset. And taking full advantage of the moment and the earlier conversation, I announced, this could be it. This could be the second coming. And immediately, 11-year-old Catherine, sitting in the back of the car, spoke up and with obvious sincerity said, forgive me, everybody. <laughs> of course, we did. But in these uncertain times, we never know when our time will come. We are to live forgiving and forgiven lives. And that's an important word for all of us. In recent days, there have been a lot of hurtful things said and done. The public arena has become toxic, and this often spills over into our homes. We could all easily become very bitter and resentful, but we dare not. Jesus taught, forgive as the Father has forgiven you, and we must you know, unforgiveness is one of the most destructive forces in the world today. It's at the heart of so many conflicts, both large and small. It can divide entire communities for generations and tear families apart for decades. It's a curse in far too many churches. But when we put our trust in Christ, we are forgiven. And we dare not refuse forgiveness to those around us. It requires determination, lots of grace, and is often hard work. But forgive, we must. Several years ago, we were visiting Northern Ireland and drove by a cemetery in which, unusual for that area, both Catholics and Protestants were buried. Our guide pointed out, however, that there was a sturdy brick wall that separated the graves. He noted that it was six feet high and it was also six feet deep to prevent any possibility of intermingling. How tragic! How pathetic! How sad to see how long bitterness and unforgiveness can persist. It's something that we must all resist. Of course, Jesus is our source and supreme example of forgiveness. As he hung from that ugly cross between the two thieves, nailed by the cruelty and hatred of vicious men, he had every reason to hate. But instead he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do.
So how then are we to live in these uncertain times? We're to live faithful lives, growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're to live fearless lives, trusting in the only one who is worthy of our trust, knowing that nothing can separate us from his love. And we're to live forgiving and forgiven lives, knowing that life is too short, life too uncertain, to live with unforgiveness. Say it with me. Faithful. Faith and forgiven. Faithful, fearless, and forgiven. That's the last word from Peter. I trust you're ready to meet the king. Let's pray. Father God, I do thank you and bless you for your word, a word that always encourages and often challenges. And today, Lord, I pray that this word, this amazing letter, would take root in our lives and that we would be prepared, a prepared people for that day of the Lord. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.